Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Hey, good evening, folks, and thank you for tuning in and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and boy, I'm really excited about tonight's show. Before we get started, I want to remind you about one of our sponsors, the Macklemore, which is a fantastic community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Lookout Mountain. Please go online to themacklemore.com to see what a fantastic course they have up there. It's co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. Our friend Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. See why he says that and check out the course online by going to themacklemore.com. All right. Here's why I'm really excited about tonight's show. My first guest has really become a wonderful friend of the show this year, a guy I have been so privileged to get to know a bit, and that's Hal Sutton. It's going to be Hal's fourth time with me this season. He shared some wonderful insights into his career and what it was like to be Hal Sutton when he was first coming out on tour. He was a kid who had a world of expectations lumped upon him because they were telling him he's going to be the next Jack Nicklaus. Tonight, I want to get Hal's thoughts on a bunch of different topics that he has shared recently on Twitter, like parents supporting their kids when they're out on the course versus showing displeasure if they happen to hit a bad shot, what junior players need to know in order to be sure that they're not being taken advantage of, why our mutual friend Donnie Hammond has said how was the entertainment during tournament rain delays, and if he got to do his career all over again, he said he'd learn to hit it hard first and straight later. We'll find out why. Looking forward to having Hal back on the show. He's going to join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from Mark Kalkovecchia. Among Mark's 13 wins on the PGA Tour, three of them came at the Phoenix Open. So we're going to talk about what it was about Phoenix that brought out the best of him. We're also going to talk about his bout with COVID-19 and his recovery. We'll talk about the Claret Jug that he won, right? He won the 89 Open Championship. So What are some of the fun things that he did with the Claret Jug over the year that he had it? Also want to get his memories of playing in the Masters and who he likes this year. So looking forward to having Mark back on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a visit from Chris Mitchell. Chris and I started podcasting way back when podcasting wasn't cool. We got our start at the same time back in 2011. We were both doing baseball podcasts for a site called Seamheads.com. I've joined Chris on his show, Roto Experts, and we've talked about the majors over the years. Tonight, I get the opportunity to turn the tables on him and get his thoughts about the Masters and who he expects to play well and why. Looking forward to having Chris as part of the show. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen. As always, 
Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. You guys know I always like to kick things off by saying hello to my good friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and reminding you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaways. You can find it on GolfTripX.com or over on Audioboom, Stitcher, or Player.fm. He and his co-host Darren Bunch, you know, they're going to let you know about great places you can go stay and play around the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they're going to let you know about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. Folks, if you love golf and you love travel, their show marries those two things better than any shows out there. They're fantastic hosts and even better people. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. I never miss an episode because Matthew's fantastic, and so are his guests. And usually the guy leading off the show is Perry French, a great friend of this show as well. You can stream his show online by going to WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app, and that's ESPN Radio over in Lexington, Kentucky. Folks, tune in. You're going to love the show. And, folks, this segment of Next on the Tee is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls, played by Dustin Johnson, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Ricky Fowler, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, I know you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X. It's available in high-visibility yellow. You guys know I love the yellow golf ball. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out by going online to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back in making his fourth appearance with me. Like I said a moment ago, a guy who's become a wonderful friend of the show this year, and that's Hal Sutton. It has been an incredible privilege getting to know Hal over the last several months. I want to remind you about just how amazing his career has been. He played his college golf at Centenary College, where he was named the 1980 College Golf Player of the Year. During his time there, he won 14 times. He was a two-time All-American and led Centenary to the NCAA Tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. He won the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship 9-8 and eight over Bob Lewis, turned pro in 1981, got his first win on the PGA Tour in 1982 at the Walt Disney World Classic in a playoff over Bill Britton, and that year he was named the Tour's Rookie of the Year. 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. Fast forward to 1998, he won the Tour Championship here in Atlanta in a playoff over B.J. Singh. 2000, he won the Players' Championship for a second time by one stroke over Tiger Woods. How captained the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team. Over the course of his career, he's won 14 times, finished second 18 times, and has 135 top 10s and 239 top 25s. And like I said, I'm very thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Hal, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Chris. It's always a pleasure being on. So, Hal, I, I, I want to talk about some of the things that uh, you've been putting out on Twitter over the last several months. And it's sort of like you let us inside your mind and you've shared some heartfelt emotions and experiences. It's like you've got a lot of things inside of you that you want to get out. What led you to opening up the way you have been? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, I grew up with a dad that tried to do everything he could to help me become uh, the best player that I could become. And he had a certain vision of that. And 
you know, he worked me pretty hard to uh, help get me to achieve uh, the goals that I had set and that he had set. Uh, you know, he, he would say I set the goals, but uh, they were largely uh, – um, we came to them together. And, you know, a, a young person, a child or a young man or a young woman, uh, we don't know what we want. And, you know, so parents kind of help us decide that. And a lot of times it's kind of what they want for us. And so with all that in mind, I started tweeting out there some of the things that I felt. Uh, I was looking at it both from a childlike standpoint as well as a parent's standpoint. And, you know, uh, I do feel like uh, many, many parents, including my dad early on, uh, you know, the love was performance-based. And, you know, my dad loved me. I know he loves me. He'll soon be 88. And, uh, you know, Without a shadow of a doubt, I know my dad loves me, but boy, I got the impression a long time ago when I was a young person trying to make a name for myself in this game that he loved me more the better I played. And I thought, you know, I don't want children to feel that way. I want them to know that they're deserving and that they're loved no matter what they shoot, that their identity doesn't come from how they play. Uh, It doesn't define them. Uh, good or bad. Um, so I started tweeting about it. And Hal, you're a, a wonderful teacher of the game now. You've got a wonderful academy down there in Houston. Uh, you spend a lot of time with junior players. Um, in the same sort of vein, are you seeing uh, parents kind of do the same thing that you said you felt from your father? Are you seeing parents that are overly um, critical of their kids and putting extra pressure on them when, uh, whether they're, you know, at, at a lesson with you or you're out playing, uh, you know, at your local golf course, that sort of thing. Are you seeing a lot of that still? Well, I have seen some of that. And if we see any of that, we see too much of it. Um, you know, I played the game early on because I love the game. And then you know, I started to get better at the game, and my dad watched me do that, and he thought, well, Hal's got a future at this, so we started pushing to get better. And you get caught up in the vacuum of that. And, yes, I've seen plenty of people doing that. And, you know, I just I want to encourage all parents and kids out there to remember that your father and mother, son and daughter first, your parent of a golfer second, you're the child of, I mean, a golfer to parents second too, you know. I just, I, I see a lot of that, and, and I want them to remember that they always got to put their feet underneath their parents' uh, table at Thanksgiving, and you, parents, you always want your child to come home at Thanksgiving. And how one of the things that that you recently tweeted out was that every young player needs someone with good eyes and good knowledge to help them. What do you mean? What do you mean by good eyes? What does that mean for you? 
Well, I think you've got to see through everything. It's not, you know, a good golfer not only has a good golf swing, he's got a lot of other things that make him the person or her the person that they are as a player. And, you know, to me, the best people that I ever had involved in my golf game were the people that saw the whole golfer, not just the golfer's swing or, or any other uh, aspect of the game. You've got to see the whole picture. And, you know, I want someone that cares about me and loves me and is thinking about me when I'm not there. It's easy to think about somebody when they're right before your eyes. But when you're thinking about someone when, you're, when they're not there, how do I help them get better? What do they need that they're not getting right now? Uh, that's someone that really cares about your, the outcome. So, and I know you've talked about your father, but when you turned pro or even when you were in college, was there someone there kind of watching out for you that wasn't your father or do you wish it, you know, you had that? So that's why you want to try to do that for some of your young players now. Well, no, my college coach Floyd Horgan uh, was very instrumental in me achieving a lot of the success that I had. I worked with Floyd throughout most of my career, to be honest with you. And uh, he was the guy that I always knew that cared. And I worked with other people. You know, Floyd was never uh, – he didn't – he wanted me to gain knowledge. He wanted me to work with other people. He took me to see Jimmy Ballard early on. You know, he said, we need to learn what other people know too. And, you know, he didn't limit me, in other words. And, uh, you know – his confidence in doing that let me know that he was secure and uh, he was, he was the guy I always went back to. And now when you came out on tour again, with, with all of the expectations and all of the great things that you achieved in your college career and college player of the year and the U S amateur champion and all that sort of thing, I have to imagine you had people coming at you from every which direction, whether it was, equipment companies, sponsors, you know, people wanting to get in your pockets and all that sort of thing. How did you decide who to trust and who not to trust? Well, it was, uh, it wasn't easy. And, you know, that's where parents kind of kick in, you know, they, they have their opinions as well. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's harder today than it, ever has been you know you there's so many reasons for people to be involved and uh you know one of the things that i try to tell the young people that we work with now is hey you need to develop the team around you and that you feel secure and you trust and go with them you know you you will as you begin to get better there will be hot names out there that people think you know you maybe you should go see what they think and the truth of the matter is they don't have as much time for you. You need to work with someone that has time, that has spent time, that will continue to spend time. Like I said before, the person that's thinking about you when you're not there. You know, to me, that was always Floyd. Uh, I knew he cared about me. I knew he wanted the best for me. He'd proven that through a long period of time. And that's why I continue to go back to him. And, you know, he's uh, – I think Floyd is 82 or three years old now, and he and I are still good friends. We talk often, and we talk golf still. You know, what do you think about this, Floyd? And I don't have any reason to work on my game, really. So I still talk to him about golf. 
So talk to you, talk to us about your decisions about what golf clubs to play, what golf balls to play. How'd you go about deciding and how would you lead, a, you know, one of your young students now if, if uh, he or she is the hot kid coming out of college about, you know, which clubs to play, which golf balls to play, how would you lead them? Well, it's different now than it was whenever I was growing up. You know, the, the, um, when I was growing up, there were two or three manufacturers that kind of stood out over others that were committed to perfection. Uh, you know, in my case, I felt like the Hogan company was when it came to the golf club. And of course, Titleist was when it came to the ball. Uh, now the gap has been closed among, among a whole lot of the manufacturers. Um, you know, you mentioned Taylor made, they make a great product. Callaway makes a great product. Titleist makes a great product. Um, Ping makes a great, I mean, so many do. And, you know, so then it boils down to what do you like to look at and who services you the best. And, um, you know, and of course, if you're really good and you're on the tour, I guess money plays into it, but, you know, I, I really don't think selling your soul to the devil, so to speak, uh, is a good idea. I think if you really believe you're good and you can continue to be good, then there will always be money there for you to play equipment. Uh, play the equipment that you know you can be the best because that's what makes you feel good about you. And there's been plenty of people that sign contracts for money, with product that they didn't hadn't proved that they could play with yet. And they failed with it and consequently went through some tough times because of it. And how you've had some advice for people that are working on their golf swings about not evaluating every single shot, which to me translates into you got to be patient if you're going to make a swing change. Is that what you meant by that? That's exactly what I meant by that. You know, um, we live in a world of instant gratification. People, because you can pull up something on Google on your phone and get the information immediately, that's kind of the way they expect the world to be treating them. And, and to be honest with you, golf is nothing like that. It comes slowly. It takes a long time to make changes. And um, so many of the kids that come in, you know, they'll hit a shot. And what do you think? After every swing, what do you think? What do you think? And, you know, you can't do golf that way. You, I mean, you, you have to hit shots. You have to feel the shot. You have to not expect every shot to be perfect when you're making a change. I mean, even when you've made the change, every shot is not going to be perfect. And swing changes take time. And I, I would impose on many people out there to take your time. Uh, you don't have to hit it hard all the time. Go slow. Swing at it slow so you can feel the whole swing. The harder we swing at it, the more it accentuates whatever you do wrong. So uh, be patient. And, Hal, you, you said not that long ago on Twitter that if you had your career to do over again, you'd learn to hit it hard first and straight later, which is – you know, if I go back to you know when I learned the game, that's sort of the opposite of how I was taught, and I'm assuming that's the opposite of how you were taught. I was always told to let the club do the work, swing easier, swing smoother. Talk about how you do it differently now. 
Well, the reason why I was a product of my environment, I grew up on a, a shorter, tighter golf course. And I had to learn to work the ball, which I did. And, uh, you know, we had wooden clubs back in those days, and they were very small heads compared to what – I mean, we've got uh, utility clubs that have heads the size of what, what our driver heads were in those days. So, you know, control was big, and uh, I didn't try to hit it hard. I tried to hit it straight. And, you know, now we have a different environment that kids are growing up in. Golf courses are real long. Uh, We have drivers that allow us to do this. And, you know, you have to – it's a learned skill to swing at it hard, to swing fast. And I would – that's the way I would learn if I were – if I had to set out on a career today as a young man or a young woman, I'd hit it uh, hard first and straight second. You can always learn to hit it straight. You can always – and honestly, I'm not so sure how whether straight's really that important. I look at the stats today. I watch the tournaments. You know, I, they're hitting out of the rough a lot. <laughs> I mean, if I spent that much time in the rough, I can guarantee I wouldn't have made any money in my day. <laughs> Talking about the course you grew up on, Hal, you set the course record when you were 16 years old. You shot 64. Talk about you know why that course being shorter but tighter, and then being able to go low helped you actually make it. Um, you make some really good scores. How did that? How did that influence your ability to go low? Well, recently I've been talking about that to young people. You know, shooting low is a mindset. You've got to believe that you have that in you. Well, how do you, how do you even start to believe that you have that in you? You've got to go low sometimes. And, you know, if you play a really hard golf course that's really long, that's, you know, maybe a, a bigger golf course than you ought to be shooting, you know, shooting par would be a good score. Well, par is not going to get anything done later on in life. And so, you know, I encourage kids if they're struggling to to uh, go low, I say move up a tee. Um, sometimes if they're younger, I'll say move up to the ladies' tees until you can actually go real low. I want Some people aren't comfortable going low. They get, you know, two or three, four under par, and they're like, oh, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm about to shoot my personal best. And they get uncomfortable. They make double bogeys and things like that. And I want kids to get used to being good. I want them to expect to be able to finish the score. That's what it's going to take later on if they want to become a professional. So they've got to get started early doing it. So to that end, Hal, that is, that's, a, that's a good point because I know if I'm playing really, really well and I've got a hole or two to go, I'll never forget, not that long ago, um, I, I had my career best sort of kind of in sight and uh, all I had to do was was make par in the last hole to uh, to shoot below 80, and then made double on the last hole. Talk about how you know our mind gets ahead of ourselves, or we start to tense up when we think you know, hey, I'm playing really well here. All I got to do is keep playing the way I'm playing. But then we get in our own way, and the next thing you know, we mess out, we blow it. Well, you know, we've all heard this a thousand times or more. You know, play one shot at a time. That's all you can play. You can't play the one you just hit. You can't play the one you're about to hit. All you can 
or the one after this one. All you can do is play the shot that you have at hand. Play it to the best of your ability, and as soon as you've hit it, forget it and move on to the next shot. You know, when you start to play well and you're not comfortable shooting low scores, you get way ahead of yourself. And you think, well, I mean, I've, I've actually, you know, early on in my career, I thought about winning before I had, you know, I had four or five holes to go. And obviously I didn't get to lift the trophy because I was thinking about the wrong thing and I still had four or five holes to go. These are all things that players have to learn how to cope with, deal with, and, you know, put it bay so that they can finish around the golf. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to learn how to be good. And, you know, you're working as hard as you can. Your parents want to see you do it. Everybody's wanting to help and everybody's rowing the boat at a different speed. And if you think about it, if we got five people row or six people rowing the boat and everybody's doing it at a different speed, the boat's not going to go straight forward. So, you know, having your team working together at the same speed with the same expectations is what every young man or woman needs in whatever athletic endeavor they're undertaking. How you mentioned the size of drivers a moment ago, and you and Ian Poulter have talked about driver loft and perhaps USGA should require the loft to be no lower than eight degrees. What would that do? Well, you know, I saw Ian say that and I thought, well, that's a, that's probably one of the things that could be done. But I have, you know, probably the greatest thing that anybody could do would be to put uh, more spin in the ball because it would make the ball curve more. It would make it, uh, it, it would do a lot of things that would change the game. But honestly, I don't know how you control what's going on right now. I think we're in an environment where distance is, uh, of utmost importance. You know, I tweeted something the other day that uh, putting is not nearly as sexy, so to speak, as driving the ball. And one of the reasons why is you can't define the putting like you can distance. It's a measurable thing that we can see how much gain we've gotten out of it. And, you know, because of that, uh, it's something that everybody's chasing because you can measure it. Uh, you can't measure how much better someone is putting. It's it's uh, it's a gray area. You know, you, you know when you're putting better as a player. You know when you're making more putts that count. But it's not as definable as, as getting longer off the tee. So take that a step further because one of the things you tweeted was, you know, you better make sure your putter is your best friend. And right in, in, in a world right now where we're all thinking driver and distance, why does your putter need to be your best friend? Well, you've got to close the deal. <laughs> and I can tell you right now uh, what's going to close the deal on every tournament that's ever played going forward is going to be a hole in a putt. That is the 72nd hole. That's what's going to happen on the 72nd hole. And all the holes prior to that, you've got to finish the hole. And it's always going to be making a putt. So, you know, you better live with your putter. You better make sure you can uh, um, count on it. 
Hal, just a couple of more before I let you go. And as we all look ahead uh, to the Masters here in a couple of weeks, do you expect it? Brian DeChambeau, speaking of distance, is going to be the guy. I mean, he's going to be hitting bombs off the tee and short irons into these greens. What do you expect to see from him and really from a, a November Masters, something we've never seen before? Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm not sure anybody can predict what's about to happen. Uh, the golf tournament, first of all, is going to look a lot different than it ever has. I'm sure it'll still be green because they use rye grass there. But uh, uh, no crowds, that's going to make the golf course look completely different. Uh, you know, it's missing the frame. Uh, a lot of people don't understand what I'm saying when I say that, but as a professional golfer, and especially at Augusta, you go there, and the, there's a frame around every picture. Uh, the gallery formed the frame of the hole so that it was easy to see where you needed to go. It's not going to be as defined this time. Um, and, you know, the weather is going to be a big factor. You know, who knows what the weather is going to be in Augusta uh, in the first week in November. So, uh, I'm excited to watch it. I have no earthly idea who's going to win it. Uh, Bryson obviously has uh, got everybody looking at what he's doing. I mean, that's how much distance means. That's you know the manufacturers have made it uh, uh, distance sales, and everybody's watching. Uh, Bryson stands out because he's chasing it so hard, and he's made such an advancement in it and in, in his own personal game. So uh, I'll be like everybody else. I'll be anxious to see what happens. Al, our mutual friend Donnie Hammond tweeted out that you were very entertaining during rain delays. What are some of your favorite stories, or what are some of the things you used to do during a rain delay to entertain uh, all the rest of the players? Well, I don't, I don't know exactly what Donnie meant by that, but there was always something going on that uh, – I, I guess we all found of interest, you know, and I would get everybody worked up about it. I'd start talking about it. And, you know, we used to talk about uh, lessons we'd get, you know, and I used to tell the first time I ever went to see Harvey Pennick, you know, that was the first lesson I ever took was from Harvey Pennick. And it was always fun because I would be animated in telling the story. I told a lot of Jackie Burke stories about lessons that he gave me, you know, and, these are personalities in the game, and I would uh, I'd try to, you know, inflict their personality into the story and, and try to make it funny. Uh, we were just passing time, and, uh, you know, I miss those days. You know, we had a great time. Uh, we traveled all around the world together like gypsies, uh, trying to beat each other, and, uh, you know, there'll never be any more of that for Donnie or myself, but, uh, you know, we still have the memory of it. Hal, before I let you go, remind everyone about the great facility you have down there in Houston now. Plus, if they can't be in Houston and can't come into the to the uh, studio, how they can get a video lesson from you by going on your website. Well, it's Hal Sutton Golf. We're real close to, I mean, I mentioned Jackie Burke. I'm right around the corner from Champions in Houston, and, um, you know, I opened an indoor golf facility myself and Chase Cooper, who I think is one of the top young teachers in the country right now, and Will Paul Sell, who was a great left-handed player. 
just the three of us are in there teaching, and uh, uh, there's a lot of knowledge in the building and uh, a lot of technology. And if you go to Hal Sutton Golf, uh, you can book a lesson or book an online lesson, either one. And Hal, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with you on social media and catch all the great tweets that you've been putting out. Well, uh, I'm on Twitter all the time, Hal Sutton. So I try to get on there at least once or twice a day. So, And I try to talk about stuff that's really important to people in their golf game. You know, I'm not on there just uh, throwing down what I'm doing at the time. You know, I, I really try to make it pertinent to other people in life. So uh, just my, my inner hard thoughts. Well, Hal, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. I always enjoy getting to spend time with you. I, I'm already looking forward to the next time. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. I'd be glad to do it, Chris. Always look forward to it. And you know, one thing I'm going to say before I get off here, I don't know anybody that cares about other people as much as you do, Chris. On social media and everywhere else, you're always promoting everybody else instead of yourself. And that is a genuine person. Thank you for what you do. Well, I appreciate that very much, Hal. Thank you. Take care, my friend. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up again soon. Okay, Chris. Thanks. Bye-bye. See you, Hal. That's a great Hal Sutton, folks. And uh, HalSuttonGolf.com is his website. Uh, You have an opportunity. I mean, how often do you get an opportunity to interact and actually get lessons, whether it's in person or it's over video from a guy who is as decorated as Hal is 83 PGA champion, two-time players champion, 14 wins. The guy should be in the, in the world golf hall of fame. Oh, by the way, with, uh, with that resume. So um, just a wonderful, genuine person. And I can't uh, tell you enough at Hal Sutton golf is where you can find him on Twitter. Check out his Twitter feed. The guy just puts out great stuff time and time again. And you can tell it's coming straight from his heart. So look forward to catching up with Hal again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Mark Kalkovecki, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. At Ben Hogan Golf, they manufacture some of the finest golf equipment in the world in their small factory in Fort Worth, Texas. That's because they build each club by hand using the same process Mr. Hogan created when he started his company 65 years ago. They call it micromanufacturing, so no mass production, no shortcuts. Visit them online at BenHoganGolf.com to learn more about their tour quality products and factory direct prices. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play plus four and release the secret that pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me is 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkovecki. Let me remind you about Mark's background. He's from Laurel, Nebraska. 
His family moved to West Palm Beach, Florida when he was 13. He won the Florida High School Golf Championship in 1977, and he played his college golf at the University of Florida from 1978 to 1980. He was named All-SEC in 1979, and that season Mark won the Furman Invitational. He turned pro in 1981, got his first win on tour at the 1986 Southwest Golf Classic. Mark has one of the lowest scoring rounds to par in PGA Tour history. He finished 28 under, a four-round total of 256 at the 2001 Waste Management Open, which featured a second-round 60. At the 2009 Canadian Open, he set a record by making nine consecutive birdies during his second round. In all, Mark has won 13 times on the PGA Tour, including that 89 Open Championship at Royal Troon and a playoff over Greg Norman and Wayne Grady. He's won four times on the Champions Tour. Over the course of his career, he's had 193 top 10 finishes and 351 top 25s. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mark Kalk. And I'm thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, nice to be back. So, Mark, I got to ask you, I saw the tweet this past weekend uh, that our friend Owen Brown sent out about the showdown in the Calcavecchia household last Saturday when Nebraska played Ohio State. Now, knowing you're from Nebraska, I'm guessing your wife Brenda is a Buckeye fan, so that had to be a rough afternoon for you. Yeah, yeah, but I'm I'm kind of a converted Buckeye fan. Uh, we we all pretty much knew the uh, what the end result of that game was going to be, but uh, I think Scott Frost is doing a great job. Uh, I think Nebraska's on the mend and, and going to be a lot better, but uh, the Buckeyes are awful good, especially on offense. Mark, I know um, you're a you're a COVID survivor, and um, your bout with it uh, included a drive from in, in your RV from a very long distance, it seemed like, from home, as I was tracking the story that, uh, that Brenda put out on Twitter. Talk about that experience, what that was like for you, and how you got through it. Yeah, September was a, was a pretty rough month. Uh, actually, October hasn't been that great either. But uh, uh, I was diagnosed September 3rd. We were in uh, Nebraska at the Prairie Club. And I did the, did the spit test. Uh, we're driving to Sioux Falls, and on Sunday the 6th, uh, my test came back positive. So then we finished driving to Sioux Falls and uh, did another test there, came back positive again, and then uh, now we had to decide what to do. Brenda kept testing negative, which was amazing. Uh, so basically, after uh, sitting in Sioux Falls for two days, uh, we decided to, to just hit the road and go back to uh, uh, Jupiter. So I had a 1,750-mile drive, and each day I felt worse and worse and worse. It took us three and a half days to get home, and, uh, yeah, by the time I get home, it was like, uh, you know, all the, all the fenders fell off the car. Uh, when I got home, uh, everything, I just I just fell apart and felt just uh, worse and worse and worse. And then <clears throat> after five days at home, went to the hospital, and uh, that that was actually the worst. Uh, so they had all the symptoms, uh, everything you can possibly imagine. And uh, told my wife, I said, I said, if you don't get me out of this hospital, I may not get out of here. So 
Yeah, it was pretty bad. Uh, I, I think I had about the worst case of any golfer that I've I've heard of. I know Tony Finau is really sick, but uh, uh, of course he's 30 years younger and uh, about 80 pounds lighter than I am. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, it was it was a rough rough stretch for sure. You've also been dealing with some back issues. So are are you fully recovered from COVID and is is the back better? How are you feeling? Yeah, now the COVID's fine. Um I think I've got my strength back. Uh I I I, I did a couple of MRIs a few weeks ago. Uh you know, once the COVID hit, uh every, everything started hurting my back. Uh you know, pretty every every bone in my body started hurting and uh uh, but my spine's not good. Uh, I've got a lot of, lot of issues uh, with with everything from the T1 all the way down to the S5. So uh, we'll see. Um, I, I played the last few days and actually felt pretty good. So uh, looking forward to Boca this week and uh, our last tournament of the year on the Champions Tour, Phoenix next week. Um, and actually my fun, uh, my son and I got in the father son, uh, in December. So, so looking forward to that. I've been trying to get in that for years and, uh, very thankful for that. So it's going to be a fun, uh, fun few months and then, uh, reevaluate and see what the, see what the heck's going on with my back. So you mentioned, are we going to see you this weekend at uh, at Timber at the Timber Tech Championship? I know it's right there in your backyard in Boca, so we, we can look forward to seeing you out there. I will be there, 100%. Yep, got the old uh, awesome. threaded 7:20 a.m. tee time tomorrow in the Pro Am, so got to get up about 4:30 my time here in Florida, uh, which is no big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm an early riser anyway, so uh, yeah, actually. Uh, Played with Russ Cochran and Gene Sowers today, and uh, out at the Cuesta Country Club, and felt like I played pretty good. So, uh, looking forward to the week. Mark, I want to get your thoughts on uh, on the upcoming Masters. I mean, you, it's a tournament. Obviously, you got you got to play in many times, almost every year from '87 to 2008. Uh, finished second in '88, tied for fourth back in 2001, and you've had ten top 20s there. So. You know that golf course well. What what do you expect to see from a a, mem- a a November Masters versus what you're used to seeing in April? So it's going to be totally different, uh, I think, <clears throat> especially based on uh, how cold it could possibly be. Um, you know, November November Georgia can be cold, so we'll see. Uh, you know, Bryson and, and Phil and everybody else are bracing up for, uh, you know, just hit it as far as they humanly can, uh, which, you know, is the way the game's going today, honestly. Uh, but it's going to be weird with no fans, no par three. Uh, it's going to be a different atmosphere. But uh, I still think, you know, it's all about the greens there. Uh, and, and, and where you place your second shot, putting, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, but <clears throat> look, there, there's no there's no replacing distance these days. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the future of the game. It's the way the game's going. And, uh, you know, Bryson proved it at uh, 
at Wingfoot, you know, you don't have to hit fairways. You just got to hit it 350 in the air, and uh, that's a huge advantage. So to that end, without the patrons there, does that play into their favor, into a guy like Phil's favor, into Bryson's favor, just, you know, bombing as far as you can because the patrons aren't there? Is that going to give them more opportunity to bounce into the pine trees and that sort of thing? Or does that actually help (laughs) them uh, not having people there? Right. That's a good question. Uh, You know, I saw Justin Thomas was kind of last week, kind of complaining that uh, with no fans, it, it didn't fire him up, you know, on Sunday like it used to, because uh, he didn't have fans cheering for him and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, at Augusta, there's not that many holes where you can actually ricochet into the fans uh, off the tee. <clears throat> One, maybe on the left, it could help you a little bit. Uh, th- th- there's a few holes that that it might make a difference, but I think with no fans there, you know, still the Masters, it's still Augusta National. Guys will still get fired up, and uh, you know, we'll see. But it's gonna it's gonna be a weird atmosphere for sure. Uh, but I, I don't think lack of fans is gonna have a big impact on uh, how anybody plays. Kind of going back to your first year playing there, Mark, and that you know, going all the way back to '87. But do you remember what it was like the when you went to the mailbox and that invitation was sitting in there for you? Well, I do because the first time I went there was '86 uh, to watch my buddy Ken Green, and uh, and at that time I had zero status on tour, and Ken Green made like. 450 footers from off the green the first day and tied for the lead and it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen and I was on my way to Joplin, Missouri uh, to play in a TPS mini tour event so at that point you know playing at Augusta was the furthest thing from my mind and then surely enough one year later I was there and uh, it was it was pretty amazing but uh, you know, I always said about Augusta, it was, it was it's it was my favorite place to get to, my favorite place to leave. Um, it was such a fun tournament. The atmosphere was so great. Uh, but by the end of the week, you're so frustrated because of the greens or or what have you. Uh, it was just it was just time <laughs> time to go. So. Uh, but having said that, just yesterday, matter of factly, a guy asked me if you could go play one course right now just to go play it, what would it be? And I said Augusta National. Just, just, just I mean, if, whether it be Marion or Shinnecock or Pebble or, or wherever, or Southern Hills or wherever, any, any great course in the country, Pine Valley, uh, where would you go play? And it would, it would definitely be Augusta. Uh, just because of uh, because it's Augusta. Do you remember the the first tee, the first time you played? I mean, I I can't imagine what it's like to try to put a peg in the ground and and try to balance the ball on the on the tee. I mean, my hands would be shaking so hard. I don't know that I could do it. Do you remember the first time you stuck the peg in the ground on the first tee and what that was like? I do actually. Uh, in '87, 
Um, I blasted it right down the middle. I was super nervous, but so excited. Uh, man, yeah, I think I think I got off to a pretty good start that day. And, uh, you know, in the course of next year, I almost won. And, you know, when, when Sandy Lyle had that shot out of the bunker on 18, uh, you know, everybody asked me, well, what, what do you think about that? And I said, well, in 88, I said he hit an amazing shot. I made an amazing birdie. But it's not a big deal because uh, I, I think I'll win this tournament, uh, you know, one year. So, <clears throat> you know, that's kind of the way I thought of it. But it, obviously it didn't happen. And uh, I, I would have loved to have had a, had a green jacket. If Sandy would just hit a crappy shot out of the bunker, it would have been nice. <laughs> but but who knows? I mean, maybe I wouldn't have won the Open in 89 either. So you, you don't know. You know how history works. You just don't know. Right. And speaking of that Open Championship victory in '89, I'm curious about your time with the Claret Jug and um, and what that was like. Because again, if if it were me, that year that I got to have the Claret Jug, I would have taken that thing with me everywhere. I'd have taken it to restaurants, drank everything I could have drank out of it, even if I was just drinking water. Right. What were some of the things that you got to do with the Claret Jug that uh, that you had fun with? No, yeah, I took it uh, like 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 all the Open champions do. I took it, uh, I took it all over the place. Uh, probably the funniest thing was even just that week when I stayed at the uh, was at the time it was called the British Caledonian Hotel in Air. Uh, There's a bar on the fourth floor, and we went up there every night. My buddy and I was caddying for me, and. Uh, of course, I said, you know, when I when I win the tournament, we're going to bring the Claret Jug up here, and we're all going to have a drink out of it. And everybody's like, yeah, 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 that's funny, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so sure enough, uh, after I won, uh, we went straight up to the bar when we got back to the hotel, and uh, the whole place was packed, and it, it was it was pretty funny. But uh, I had a lot of good times with the Jug, as uh, all the champions do. Um, when I had to bring it back the next year at St. Andrews, uh, the invitation was for like uh, 7.30 for 8. So I didn't know what that meant. So I, I assumed that meant 8. So I showed up at 8, and the, and the, the press ripped me for being late. But uh, my friends and I that uh, had over there for the uh, defending champion thing at St. Andrews, uh, there were still – uh, champagne in the cup when I brought it back, so they kind of roughed me up for that as well. <laughs> Bringing the cup back with, with champagne in it, and I was and I was late, so I got roughed up pretty bad for that. Mark, thinking back over your career, what are some of the favorite shots that you've hit that you enjoy thinking back on, and and what are some of the shots that you've seen other players hit that you thought to yourself, "Wow, I can't believe you just pulled that off." Right. Um, you know, I think about, I, I go back and think about uh, uh, some of the Phoenix Opens I've won and a few of the shots I hold there. Uh, I actually saw a thing from uh, uh, Royal Sydney when I won the Australian Open in 88, and I know Gil Hans is redoing that course, which is a second redo, and I, I chipped in five times that week, so I've I've had some good flashbacks of uh, 
of really good memories uh, on courses that uh, I've won at uh, at Riviera in uh, 88, oh, 89 when I won. Uh, I chipped in five times as well there. And I remember Sandy Lyle giving me a shady look that uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I chipped in from the hill on 18, he just scowled at me. So uh, there, there's, there's been times, uh, you know, back – Back in the day when my short game was on fire, where uh, uh, a lot of guys kind of gave me some strange looks. So I, I, I do have good memories of that. What about some of the other guys that uh, that you've been playing with that have pulled off some shots that had you shaking your head outside of Sandy Lyle at the Masters? Yeah, no, there's there's been a lot of that. Uh, Fred Couples at the uh, uh, I guess it was the uh, 88 or 89 Byron Nelson flew his drive 10 yards out of bounds in the playoff. It hit a rock and jumped back in bounds. Uh, anyway, so he ended up beating me in the third hole of the playoff. So that was, that was wow. kind of a crappy break. So I always get Fred crap about that, but um, – <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's been a lot of great shots played against me. Uh, I, I go back and think about Ryder Cups and stuff and, uh, you know, letting Monty tie me in uh, 91. Akiwa was, uh, of course, a, a, a big memory. And now Monty, you know, is, is a fixture out here on the Champions Tour, and he's great. I mean, he really is. He's, he's got a great personality. Uh, he, he's very well accepted. And, uh uh, we have we have a lot of fun together. Mark, just a couple more before I let you go. And you mentioned the Phoenix Open, and you've won three times. And going away every time, you won by seven, you won by five, you won by eight. What was it about right. the Phoenix Open that uh, brought out the best in you? I just love playing at home, and I won two Hondas as well, uh, staying at home. So five of my 13 wins have been at home. Uh, there's something about it. Uh, just home cooking, staying at home, playing in front of my friends, trying to show off. Uh, I just love it. Uh, you know, I love the TPC of Scottsdale. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a golf course that uh, you couldn't really afford to short side yourself. But if you did, you had to have an amazing uh, bunker game and, and flop shot game, which I always had. So I, I think it just uh, the golf course set up perfectly for me. And, and those greens aren't easy to read. And for some reason, uh, I could read them. Uh, made a lot of putts there. You know, it's just, uh, just my favorite event. Uh, just, just the Thunderbirds gave me uh, like 200 tickets every year. And I got rid of every one of them. And it was so cool to have all my friends out there uh, watching me. And it just really fired me up to play good. And Mark, like I mentioned in your intro, at the 2009 Canadian Open, you made nine consecutive birdies in your second round. And I'm, I'm curious, during that run, did you know you were on that streak? Did your caddy know you were on that streak? And were they, they were sort of treating you like a pitcher throwing a no-hitter? No one wanted to talk to you about it. There's <laughs> two funny stories about that. My 14-year-old son was caddying for me. And uh, when I made four birdies in a row, 
he, he gave me like a, a fist pump and said, yeah, that's like four in a row. I said, yeah, I know. Cool. And then I had, uh, you know, I made a few more in a row. And then uh, uh, on 18, I hit a five wood about 10 feet for my seventh birdie in a row. And I thought, well, shoot, if I make this, I'm going to screw up the birdie streak. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, of course, I tried to make it and just missed it. And then I thought to myself, well, the next hole is not a hard hole. The next hole is a par five. And and I knew the, the record was eight. And guess who I'm playing with? J.P. Hayes. It was one of the guys that had eight in a row. Wow. So sure enough, and I didn't think of that at the time, but uh, on my eighth hole, I hit a, not a hard hole, I hit a driver nine on there about five feet, had a downhill left or right bender and, and poured it right in the middle. And so on the ninth hole, after eight in a row, it's a par five. And my son says, he's 14, he says, Dad, don't duck hook it over there by the fence like you did yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, it, of course, it just made me laugh. And uh, th- that totally relaxed me. I hit a perfect drive, five wood on the green, two putter from 30 feet. And uh, J.P. Hayes, after I made nine in a row, comes up to me and says, thanks thanks for breaking the only PGA Tour record I ever had. <laughs> so it, it, he was really cool about it. It was pretty funny. And uh, I almost birdied the next hole. I, I missed the green, and my chip lipped out for 10 in a row. So that, that would have been pretty cool if I had one in. But, yeah, it was it was a great streak for sure. Mark, before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and the tournaments you're going to be playing in and follow you on social media. Yep, I'm on Twitter, Mark Kalk, and uh, uh, Facebook as well, but mostly Twitter. Uh, that's, that's my that's my hang, and uh, uh, I try to keep everybody amused the best I can. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of this show tonight. Always a lot of fun getting to spend time with you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime. Always, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet. Stay safe, Mark. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up soon. You got it. See you, Mark. That's the great Mark Kalkovecchia, another guy who uh, such a great uh, PGA and, uh, and Champions Tour career. I mean, you think about all the things that he achieved, not only the, the Open Championship in 89, but, I mean, 193 top 10 finishes, 351 top 25s. Another guy who belongs in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Hopefully uh, we can see both he and Hal get in there very soon. So looking forward to catching up with Mark again, at Mark Kalk on Twitter, a great follow, and so was his wife, Brenda. Those two, amazing, and I really look forward to uh, – hearing more about what he does and seeing what he does over the next few weeks on the champions tour. Hopefully the back feels good and uh, we get to follow him again next year out on the champions tour as well. All right, before I get to my next guest, Chris Mitchell, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with golfers with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half. With a Finn Cycle, you can play a hole on average in seven and a half minutes. Have more fun. Rediscover your inner kid cruising the course on a Finn. 
Go online to finscooters.com to see what I'm talking about. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts. The resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now joining me is Chris Mitchell. I've had the privilege of knowing Chris for many years. We started doing podcasts for a baseball site called CMEDS back in 2011. He co-hosted a show called The Evil Empire in the Nation, 60 Minutes of Sox-Yankees Baseball. He's currently hosting three podcasts. A podcast to be named later, the Roto Experts Fantasy Sports Show, and the Prospects Podcast. He started his career as a producer at WBZ Radio in Boston. He's a freelance writer and a staff writer for Baseball America, Roto Experts, Draft Valet, Fantasy Draft, and Fan Track. He's also a contributing writer now for New England Golf. You can follow him on Twitter at CJMitch73. And I'm excited to finally get to turn the tables on him tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Chris, how are you, my friend? That's a heck of an introduction, Chris. And I guess with me being on the other side of this one, I guess I can't rip you for your uh, Louis Uyssois in love. I always give you a hard time on that. And now, because you're the host, I can't do that, right? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, when we get to the end of the segment, you can't pick him in your, uh, in your foursome or for your dark horse to win the Masters either, by the way. Well, you, you, get him, you get him as a caddy. You get him automatically. So you get like a fifth. Uh, so I can pick him, but he's going to be one of my four. That's how this works? <laughs> that is exactly how this is going to work, my friend. Hey, I, I got to congratulate you on, the, uh, on writing now for New England Golf. I got to be honest, I'm a little bit jealous of – the golf you're going to get to play, the pub food you're going to get to eat. Talk about how you landed that gig. Yeah, I, I, I've been spending time down on Cape Cod for quite some time. My parents own a place. I go down and visit them, and there's so many really good courses on the Cape. Uh, I actually do a little bit of work for a couple of the courses down there. I'm a member at Old Barnstable Fairgrounds, which is also uh, they have a sister course called Hyannis. I've been members there, and they needed a starter for a little while, so – I didn't really need the job at, you know, for the money, but I figured, you know, what the heck, they need a starter every once in a while for a couple of months. I, I figured I'd, uh, I'd, I'd put it in. I'd talk to the golfers. You know, the starter doesn't do a whole lot. You know, says hello, tells you what the courses are like, and, and gives you, a, you know, a bucket of balls so you can go down to the range. And uh, I was working one Sunday, and the, the editor and owner of the site, uh, New England.golf, 
he was playing, I was like, oh, wow, and, you know, this is interesting. You know, I write for fantasy sports, and I always would love to do some golf stuff. He said, yeah, give me a call. So I gave him a ring, and I just started contributing to him. I haven't done a whole lot of contributing to him quite yet to that site, NewEngland.golf, but um, I pretty much <laughs> signed on for the same reason. I asked him, he's like, what does this pay for article-wise? And he's like, well, it doesn't pay a lot, but you got great perks, and, and that, that's pretty much what I bought into it, which was – you know, play a lot of really nice courses, hopefully both public and private, and play a bunch of free golf, and uh, and then also do the best you can to to hype the good ones, and also let people know that you know if there's something not perfect about a course, you got to be honest, but uh, you know, let people know where to go and what's uh, and some good food too. So, Chris, to that end, talk about some of the great courses up in that area, whether it's you know across New England on Cape Cod that maybe our folks don't know enough about or folks up in that area need to make sure they give it a try? Well, like I said, I, I do work a little bit at Old Barnstable Fairgrounds in Hyannis, but it's a, it's a public course, gets a lot of play. As you know, I, I was amazed. I was doing some research recently. Did I, You probably know this because you know a lot more about golf than I do, but uh, were, I was talking to somebody today. They said there were 10 million more rounds of golf played this year than at this exact same time last year. Can you imagine that? 10 million more rounds of golf were played, I'm assuming, since the beginning of the pandemic at this point this year than last. I was stunned to hear that number. I was trying to do the math on what that might mean. That could be as much as a billion dollars. Could you imagine that? 10 million rounds. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I mean, think about it, right? Because of the pandemic, what the heck else are we doing, right? We can't. We can't get together in groups. You know, we're not going to, you know, for folks up in that area, you're not going to, to Foxborough to see a Patriots game. You're not going to Fenway to see a Red Sox game. None of that stuff is happening. What else are we doing? Go out and play golf, right? You get the opportunity to be outside. You can be socially distant and have a lot of fun as well. So, you know, Chris, I'm, I'm excited for what, you know, I'm in a, in a terrible year for everything else. But what this has meant to the golf industry for people that have come to the game, people have gone out and played more to your point. I think it's got to be tremendous uh, for the growth of the game. It's been terrible for just about everything else that you can possibly imagine, but at least it has gotten people out to play the game. So to your point, uh, that's, that's a huge number. It is. I was shocked to hear that. I did. I did not know that. Um, but when you, we're talking about Cape, there's, there's lots of great courses in the New England area because it's newengland.golf. But uh, as far as the Cape goes, there's, there's some obvious ones. I think anyone who knows who looks up Cape Golf, they're going to come across Pine Hills. Uh, and the reason for that being that they have two 18-hole courses. One is a Reese, Reese Jones course, and one is the Jack Nicklaus course. So anyone who even puts in Cape Cod and golf, A, my site's going to come up, and B, Pine Hills is going to come up. That's a, that's a good take. That's on the pricier side, but the quality is good. The course is always in exceptional shape. Uh, so if you want to just play the standard kind of everybody knows it kind of course, Pine Hills is, is very good. And again, it's got 36 holes. So if you want to play a, a long day or a couple, you know, one hole, one course, one day, one day, the next, that works uh, pretty well there. If you want to do it on the more reasonable side, you know, the, the average Joe kind of side, the blue collar kind of area where you're paying a, a reasonable price and on the Cape, that's that you probably want to be able to do something like that. There are a lot of courses there. As I said, Old Barnstable Fairgrounds is a public course. Um, but it's in fantastic shape. Somehow they keep it fantastically well-groomed, uh, even though this was an extremely dry summer. Uh, I played some courses as far as some of the write-ups that I've been working on, and you get, di- you get dirty spots. You get some, some brown areas in, in a lot of courses because it was so dry, and, and somehow uh, on, the, on the Cape that can be a problem as well. 
But Old Barnstable and Hyannis um, Golf Club have both been fantastic for that. Uh, they've been just, uh, it's amazing how well they keep it in shape. So I play those courses most of the time. I think Hyannis is more interesting as far as the layout. But uh, Old Barnstable is perfect for walking. The weather is perfect. Even when it's, you know, 90 degrees or humid, there's always a breeze. It's about as high as you're going to get on the Cape. So uh, as far as the conditions go, you, Old Barnstable, for the price and the quality, is really fantastic. And, again, even though I do work there on occasion, I'm not brown-nosing here. It actually is a phenomenal course. One of the reasons I don't play as much on the Cape as I would like is that I'm always playing at Old Barnstable. But um, – uh, some other courses down there, Crosswinds is really fantastic. They've got 27 holes, so if you want to get in an extra nine there, that's really uh, really good a good take. Uh, Waverly Oaks as well. There's a lot of co- courses on on Plymouth, right in the Plymouth area, which is anyone who knows the Cape. It's just off Cape. It's just over the bridge, or if you're coming from Boston, it's just before the bridge. And, and uh, Plymouth is a huge town. But they've got a lot of really good courses. Waverly Oaks is, is a really strong one. That's right around where Pine Hills is. Um, and so if you want to go Cape-wise for that, that's a fantastic place. Uh, another interesting one, if you want to really go down, uh, you want to go really down, a far way down the Cape, uh, there's a course called Highland Links. It's, a, it's, a, it's only nine holes. So you play the Blues for one nine and you play the Whites for the other nine. But what's interesting about it and what made me think of this course and I haven't played it. I got to be honest. I heard about it. I made some calls. I tried to get on the course to to write it up. I wasn't actually able to do it, but I did some research on it anyway. And uh, it, if you play the nine, especially if it's in the morning or if you play early in the season, there's about six holes that are on the water. And if you play it just right at the right time, you can actually see whales on the ocean while you're playing. So wow. I heard that story and I thought that was pretty phenomenal. I, I actually played out in California a couple times, and there's a course out there called Pacific Groves. I don't know if people out there know that. They call it kind of like the baby pebble beach because it's, it's affordable, it's cheap. There's nowhere, it's nowhere near the quality of a pebble beach. I mean, what is? But it has about six holes on the Pacific Ocean. And so when I was playing there, I always go there. Anytime I go to California, I play, I play that because I'm an average Joe who makes average money. So I play that uh, Pacific Groves. And it's right on the Pacific Ocean. And also there's deer actually running in the fairways while you're playing. So I think of that wow. course when I, when I heard the story about Truro. You can actually see some whales out in the ocean while you're, while you're teeing off. I thought, you know, that kind of take, that kind of view, that kind of scenery, it's hard. Even though it's only nine holes, it's hard not to think that that's a course you really got to go to if you're going to be on the Cape. Truro was a long way down the Cape, but if you can get there, that's a, that's a fantastic take from what I've been able to gather. And I'm, I'm trying to get out there before the snow falls. We'll see what happens. Are there other courses, you know, one or two other courses that you haven't played yet that you're dying to get an opportunity to get out there and uh, see what it's like? There's another. There are a few. There's a South Shore Country Club is well spoken of. The Ridge Club is a is a is one of those high end kind of courses. So uh, the Ridge Club is probably not a course that everybody can get on, but if you can find a way to pull some strings, the Ridge Club is phenomenally good. Uh, if you don't mind going to some some other place, like there's uh, Jeremy Romanick, the hockey player. He uh, is actually, from what I've been able to gather, an investor in Pembroke Country Club. I've heard some good things about that. Um, Thorny Lee is another one, private club, so that that's private. You got to be able to get get a hook up on that one. But I've heard some really impressive things about that. Another course that's interesting. It's private, but it's reasonable private. You know, it's like ten grand for a membership, kind of reasonable. Uh, it's not, you know, pay two hundred thousand just so you can be a member, kind of private. It's a ten grand flat fee. You can do swimming and tennis and all that. It's a course called Willow Bend. It's on. Uh, it's in the Marston Mills area. Uh, Twenty-seven holes. 
Uh, used to be it was it was first uh, well it was owned by a bunch of different people, but then the uh, the creator of Reebok the sneaker, he bought it because there's an extremely private course down on the Cape. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but it's extremely ex- exclusive to the point where like Tip O'Neill, the famous uh, Massachusetts. Uh, um, Speaker of the House of, for Congress. He couldn't even become a member at this one private course. It was so private. They exclude everybody. So the, uh, the, the creator of Reebok couldn't get in as a member. He thought it was out of racial reasons. He thought he was, he was being banned because of, it was prejudice. So he bought Willow Bend and made it a big deal. He made all of his sponsor guys like um, uh, he made the Shark play in his weekly tournament. Jim Furyk used to play. Every single summer he'd have a, they'd have a charity event at Willow Bend uh, and uh, Jason Duffner, I think, played there. I know that um, Robert Allenby and, and, and uh, Stuart Appleby both played there. Anybody who in golf who was uh, who was a sponsor for Reebok all came down to these one charity events. Uh, that's the course. He has since sold it, but it, it's a very nice course. And again, you can get on it. Uh, you can probably find your way on it as a as a as a non-member if you really want to give it a look and see if you know, if you want to say that you might buy a house or you're looking to get a membership. Uh, you can probably find a way to get on there. Uh, and it, it's a nice course. Willow Bend is really kept like it's kept like a, a top-notch country club kind of private course. But as a member, it's like ten or fifteen grand, so it's it's at least reasonable. <laughs> if ten or fifteen grand to play golf unlimited is reasonable, that's that's a reasonable game compared to a lot of uh, clubs down here. Chris, I want to switch gears and uh, and get your thoughts. We got to spend some time on the Masters, and you know, first we've never seen a, a November Masters. The average temperature in Augusta. In November is a high of 67, low 47, about 10 degrees cooler than what we see in April. I want to get your thoughts. How much of a factor do you think weather is going to be? See, that's interesting. When I was listening with your interview with Mark, he, he stole all my thunder as far as what he was thinking. I was hoping that I had some original thoughts. But one, he seemed to be disappointed in Bryson DeChambeau and how he's kind of making point to the golf world that distance is all that matters. It seemed like I did not like that. I don't like that either. And then the other one was that he, he raised what you just asked, which is it's going to be very different because it's going to be a lot colder. And, and that's, that to me is what's interesting. You're actually have been there. You know what it feels like in April. It sounds, I mean, 47 degrees in Georgia. That sounds like it's almost impossible to believe, but that course, those greens are so undulating and so fast. If it's, if if they're playing in 50 degree weather, that's almost like ice, isn't it? I mean, there won't be ice, but for Georgia, for Augusta, wouldn't that be almost like ice? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I got to imagine the greens are going to be already firm and fast, and now you you want to turn the temperature down. Boy, I, I'm interested to see how receptive the greens are, you know, at, at that temperature, and and then you know who gets the unlucky draw of the morning when it's you know potentially colder than that, right? So uh, the to me, I think morning the weather's going to play a huge yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm interested to see how that plays out. I think it's going to be a huge factor. Yeah, I, I do too. I'm, one, I'm wondering, will they let the greens, maybe maybe they won't make them quite as fast. Maybe they'll have the stimp a little bit a little bit more reasonable, expecting it to play faster because the greens are I mean, would, would they do that as a way? Because, I mean, they're lightning fast as it is. And then if they're slippery, how are those balls going to stick on the greens? How are the, how are they going to be able to hold their lines? I'm wondering if if they'll maybe go a little easy on the greens to make sure that they don't become literally glass on the on the grounds. I'm, I, that to me is going to be fascinating. To, I hope the I hope the broadcast covers that extensively at least in the first couple of days because to me that'll be that's a fascinating aspect of this tournament. Agreed. 
I also want to get your thoughts on Bryson DeChambeau as, you know, we Mark talked about it a little bit, but you know, we, we hear now that he's driving the golf ball 400 yards, right? That's something that he's promoted. Um, and that's without, you know, the extended 48 inch driver. Do you expect him if, uh, if the, if the course is firm and fast that he could potentially overpower the golf course and, uh, you know, be hitting drivers, you know, short iron, into every one of these greens or uh, or do you think it's going to be a little more difficult than what it sounds like i think it's a proving day for for, for bryson because I, I mark kind of touched on it a little bit i think you look at him in the in exactly what mark said it doesn't matter where he and he proved it at Wingfoot, just like mark said again if it doesn't matter where it goes all it matters is it gets really really close to the green because even when you're hitting out of the rough it's easy to get the ball relatively close uh if you're close it does, again, thick rough, obviously he proved that at Wingfoot. It doesn't matter how thick the rough is. If you're really close and you're hitting the right club, these guys are strong enough that Bryson could put it close to the hole repeatedly, even though he had extremely difficult, almost what seemed like impossible lies. For me, Augusta is, is very, it's very overpowerable. I mean, if you look at all the courses these days, it's not uncommon for a 470-yard par four, and these guys are obviously reaching it with no problem at all. Uh, so a lot of these courses are a lot longer than they used to be. Augusta, I think you'll probably cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but Augusta it can't really do that. So by today's standard, Augusta is an extremely short course. I would I would say when you see these 650-yard par fives, these 530-yard par fours, I mean, these courses in general are just getting longer and longer and longer. Augusta can't do that. So I think a player can definitely overpower it. But the one area that Augusta can grit its teeth and in, in where I think DeChambeau is going to have to prove his mettle, and if he does it, I think he deserves a little bit more credit than we're giving him at the moment, is even if he puts it close, like we talked about in the first part, those greens are so tough. You can miss four footers. So even if DeChambeau is putting it within nine feet because he's so close to the greens on every single hole because he's overpowering the course, if he puts it within nine feet but he can't make the putt because Augusta is so quick and the greens are so difficult to putt, then that'll pretty much confirm that the reason why he's been playing as dominantly as he has, I mean, he was always a good player. I don't think we should disrespect him for that. He's always been good. But the reason why he seems like he's just dominating the tour right now or has the potential to is that he gets so close so often. He has so many easy putts for for birdie and eagle that he just makes a bunch of them. Is he truly a good putter or is he just taking advantage of the fact that he's always so close to the hole? I think Augusta will, will make him actually earn it. Those short putts, I mean, you can miss three-footers at Augusta. If you're in the wrong place, even if you're close to the green and you're chipping on all these, I mean, really that's what DeChambeau is. He's driving and then chipping. He's not, he's not really approaching the greens. He's chipping to the greens, and then he's got these really short putts. Augusta could be difficult, and if he, doesn't, if he misses a whole bunch of these putts and, he, and he's fine, he, you know, he two putts and he has a respectable round, that's fine. But to win Augusta, you've got to be somewhere between 9 and 12 or 13, maybe even more. He's got to make those putts, and he can't miss any of the short ones for pars either. If he does that and he ends up and goes out and wins, I think we've got to give him credit for not just being long, but that his short stuff is pretty good too. And if he can't do it, then I think we've got to continue to doubt him and continue to make him prove it. Because I don't think, even though he did something with Woodford, I don't think anyone thought he could. I'm not conv- totally convinced that – that yet i want to see what he does on greens like augusta and maybe that's what golf needs to do going forward is they need to make the greens faster and more difficult and that's how you diminish the the power in the game today because i agree with with cal the power is not good for the game in my view and and deshambo was saying look this is how you win and it looks like he's proven it. and i'm hoping that augusta can prove that, he, that that that's not the case 
Chris, I want to get your thoughts on Tiger. He's a guy that um, looks like he's struggling with his game a bit right now. Didn't qualify uh, to make it to the Tour Championship here in Atlanta. Missed the cut at the U.S. Open. Finished sec- you know, tied for 72nd this past weekend at the Zozo Championship, a tournament he won on a different course, but a tournament he won last year. And uh, that 72nd was just a couple of places out of last place. But we know Augusta National a lot of times brings out the best in the legends of the game. I'm curious to get your thoughts. You give him a chance to defend the title, or do you think he's going to struggle to make the cut? I think he might make the cut. Uh, and I think that's really what's disappointing about this story is that I, it's not that Tiger doesn't have the game when he's playing well, but I just don't think his body allows him to play well enough. So between having to put in the necessary practice just to be sharp enough to contend against the world's best, then go out and play 18 on Thursday and 18 on Friday, I, I, just, have, I just don't think his body can do it enough. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Maybe some weeks if he plays it just right. He always talks there. You hear the media always talking about how maintenance for him is somehow getting himself in position to be able to ramp it up in order to compete in these big events. And he's trying to find that perfect formula on how to do it. I just don't think he can. I just don't think his body can do it. And that's unfortunate because obviously I, I was looking back at last year's tournament and it still stuns me that he won, <laughs> to be honest. Because I look at him now and I don't think he can play four rounds at a championship level. And yet just a year ago, a little more than a year now, uh, he actually won a major. And, and so I think that's a testament to how well he plays Augusta and how, how competitive he is as a player. So, yeah, I think he can make the cut. I think that would be a good achievement for him to actually contend, though. Like I said, I don't think he can put four rounds together physically at the level he has to. It's just, you know, it, it, to, to, to us, it probably we don't see it. But when you're off by just a couple degrees here, all of a sudden you've got a 25-footer rather than a 12-footer. Or you've got a 15-footer rather than a tap-in. And in and, and over four rounds against the world's best, that, those tiny little differences that we wouldn't even notice – is all the difference in the world between making the cut and actually contending to win. And I'm afraid that physically Tiger just can't – those little those little differences are, are all the difference in the world. And I'm afraid that Tiger can't do that for four rounds at the top of the level. But I, I think because he's so good, so he's so competitive, and because he's so good at Augusta, he can probably make the cut. I just don't think he has any – can really seriously put in an effort where he contend again. It would be an amazing story, but I, no, I don't think he can actually win this thing. Yeah, and the cold temperatures never do do any for guys that are or girls for that anybody that's dealing with a back uh, a back problem. So yeah, I'll be interested to see how well he plays in there as well. Um, want to get your thoughts on some of the other top players? Patrick Reed is a is a guy uh, when you look at all the odds makers listed as a a forty to one player. Uh, we know he won a couple of years ago uh, in twenty eighteen, finished tied for thirty six last year. Do you expect Patrick Reed to be a factor? I really don't. He's definitely one of the best in the world, and when he's on a run, he can really do it. And sort of like Calc, when Reed gets on a run, he can put in four or five birdies in a row. So obviously he has the game to do that. He's obviously done it before. But I don't. I, I, he just seems too inconsistent to me right now at least. So would it shock me if he was up at the top of the leaderboard on Thursday or, or at least lingering on Friday? It wouldn't. But for him to actually do it for four days at Augusta this week, there's so many good players right now, and there's a lot of guys playing extremely well. I don't. I just don't think that this is going to be Reed's week, and I, I don't. I don't know if this course plays phenomenally well for him either. But um, 
again, I think he can play pretty well, but I don't think I don't I wouldn't take him all that seriously at the top. Again, anyone can do it at that level, but no, I'm I'm not banking on him. Terrell Hatton is a forty to one player, pretty hot coming over from the European tour. Never been a factor in the Masters in the past high for fifty six last year. Terrell Hatton at least a guy that uh, could be a dark horse, maybe. Yes, and 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 I write in the fantasy world, and so when you're talking about fantasy golf, picking someone far down the list or on cheap dollars, if you're playing in a fantasy a daily fantasy site, a guy like him is intriguing, especially since he's a foreign player, so he's maybe not as well known as a lot of people. A lot of times that impacts the price that a player is listed in fantasy sites. Uh, from that perspective, a cheap guy that could be competitive, he's an interesting value for a fantasy player. Um, so I, I look at a lot of players that way, whether it's fantasy-wise or we're just talking golf in general. So he fits that description. I, I, if my recollection of his game is correct, he just seems to hit the ball a little low. Uh, and I, I think you want to be able to come in at some of these greens with, with some height and be able to hold it. And, again, if the greens are really slippery or they've got a skim on them or something because it's a little chilly – if if I'm right about him being a little bit of a, a lower ball ball flight guy, I don't think that really suits his course extremely well. But playing well now is always a good thing. Uh, and I don't know if that leads to guys winning. You know, the hottest player on tour at the moment doesn't seem to win at Augusta. But again, usually the majors are at the beginning of the season, not the end or beyond the end. So um, playing well could be more important this year than ever before. And if that's the case, then Hatton's uh, definitely got a shot. But I don't think his game really suits Augusta all that well. And I don't think that foreign players usually play this course all that well uh, compared to the Americans either. So I think he's got a little bit of a hill to climb there. What about Webb Simpson? He's a guy 35-1 to odds right now, finished tied for fifth last year. In five starts, he's never finished worse than a tied for 13th. Tied for eighth uh, at the U.S. Open a little while ago. Um, could this be a guy that uh, might actually get his second major going all the way back to the 2012 U.S. Open? What do you think about Webb Simpson? You picked one of the guys that I like. I like Webb Simpson. Uh, when I was doing my a little bit of research, and it, Webb Simpson reminds me of Matt Kuchar. And, and all those times that you come on my show and we talk podcasts, I always talk about guys that can win and guys that are great players that just kind of just linger on the tour. Matt Kuchar is, a, by any normal standard, a great player. <laughs> don't, don't let me mislead anyone with what I'm saying. But what we always talk about when you come on my show is that Matt Kuchar is always competitive, but he doesn't always seem to really be a serious contender, and especially in the majors. Um, Webb Simpson seems to be a lot like that for me except that he does compete at a higher level than Kuchar. I don't think he's – you know, Matt Kuchar is a 11 through 20 kind of guy. That's where he seems to always finish. He makes every single cut. He's always around the leaderboard. But he – and again, he's had some wins. But when it comes to the majors, I never think of seriously Matt Kuchar. Webb Simpson's a little bit different. He does play a little bit better. I think he's a little bit on the higher end uh, than a Matt Kuchar. And so when you combine the fact that Webb Simpson is so steady, that he's so consistent, and that I think he is a little bit better of a, an overall talent than Matt Kuchar, I do think that, that he can do it at this course. And, again, I don't think – Augusta isn't a course where you, have to over, where you have to overpower the course. You know, wing foot, you had to be long, but you also had to be, in the, you had to be straight. Augusta is not the longest course that these guys are going to play, so I think that plays into Simpson. He doesn't have to be the longest out there every single Thursday and Friday to be a contender. So I like I like him a lot, and the odds are pretty good. You know, he's not like the, the seven to one favorites or something. So yeah, I do. I like Simpson quite a bit. As far as fantasy goes, well, 
Let's talk about Colin Morikawa, a guy that's 25 to 1. Obviously, he's won a major this year, won the PGA. It's going to be his first Masters. Is he a guy that can contend? I, I love his I love his iron play. We know Augusta National is a, a second shot golf course. I think I like him. I don't know. What what are your thoughts about Morikawa and his first Masters? You're stealing my thunders. I'm thinking the exact same thing that you are. I'm hoping that golf goes the way of Marikawa rather than the way Bryson Chambeau is making golf look like it is. Because he is a great player. Like you said, his irons are just immaculate. It is amazing how well he hits the irons. I mean, he's had a couple bad terms here or there the last month after winning the major, but his iron play is just phenomenal. It's amazing how good he is, how accurate he is, how the distance control. And, and he's, not, he's not one of the longest hitters on tour. He's, long, he's plenty long enough, but he's not one of the longer players. He just does everything else so well. I love the, the his his makeup and, and what his game is about as far as being able to compete at Augusta. You, you never know. And the, the pressure of Augusta doesn't seem like he would get at him, so I, I think that's good as well. He's obviously won a major already. I love Marikawa, and like I said, I, I don't like the game going the way it is as far as power. I don't want them to just pound the ball the heck down there. You You know me. I love to see players struggle for pars at the U.S. Open. I don't like when a Bryson DeChambeau doesn't struggle for pars because he hits it so far down, the rough doesn't even matter. I don't like that. I like I want the player like Colin Marikawa to, 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 to define what the future of golf is going to be, and, and I think he has the game to do it. I, I'm excited about seeing him play, and I do think he can compete at Augusta. Those iron plays and the way he can stick it, and I, I really do. I like him quite a bit. What about Brooks Kepka? Here's a guy coming back from, you know, a lot of injuries. 2020 hasn't been his friend. He's a 20 to one odds favorite. Um, a guy that, you know, prior to this year, if it's a major, Brooks Kepka is probably going to be right at the top of the guys we'd pick. He finished tied for second last year. Do you like him this week or do you got to see him prove it a little bit to see that he's back and healthy? I don't know if I need to see him to prove it. I just don't think I'll ever buy into Bruce Kepka, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I'm a data guy. So when I write about fantasy sports, I, I write at fantasydata.com. And before I put any profile together, I find stats and numbers to back up what I'm saying. And if I don't have stats and numbers, then I don't write up a profile. And Brooks Kepka has – the only thing he's really proven to us is that when, the, when it matters, he's amazing. Now, granted, he was in the top five or ten in the world for a while there, and, and, but I don't know how those rankings work because it seems like you put together nine good weeks and all of a sudden you're in the top 20. So I don't know how those algorithms function. The only thing he's really proven to us is that when the tournament matters the most, he is extremely good at being competitive or outright winning. So I, I would never bet against him, but because he's not consistently amazing like a Justin Thomas or even a, a, D, uh, you know, a, John, a Dustin Johnson has, has become consistent. He was a little inconsistent for a while early in his career, but he's become consistent now. John Rahm even is another guy who's pretty consistently top 10. Until Kepka does that, I will always have doubts that he's going to win, even though he's got the pedigree, obviously, and there's no doubt. It would not shock me one bit if he went out and got it done. But until he does it consistently for three years in a row, I mean, that's a lot to ask. But until he becomes that type of player, I'm always going to have doubts that he's going to get it done in the major. And so I'm going to be approaching him the same way uh, this time around. You mentioned Justin Thomas. Justin Thomas, 14-1, to 1, getting a little better every year at the Masters. Last year finished tied for 12th. We saw him uh, not long ago finish tied for 8th at the U.S. Open, tied for 2nd last week at the Zozo. He's won three times this calendar year, most recently at the WGC event back in August. 
Is this a guy that uh, you think is really going to be there on Sunday afternoon? I think he's the best player in the world. I think when you put together everything as far as hitting the irons, both consistently close to the pin, but also distance, you look at his driving ability, you look at his – there is no such thing as Tiger Woods anymore. Tiger Woods was kind of an anomaly. He was amazing at everything. He didn't just dominate the course with power like like Bryson DeChambeau is. Tiger was amazing at everything. His short game, his putting, he could hit it long and high, but also extremely accurate. Tiger was just amazing. There is no Tiger anymore. But I think Dustin – Justin Thomas is the closest thing to that in the game right now. Again, nowhere near that level. I don't want anyone who's listening to think that I'm saying that Justin Thomas is almost Tiger or the next or anything like that. But he's got the everything in his game that I think very few players have. Uh, I don't know why he hasn't done as well as he probably should have at Augusta. Augusta isn't an impossible course. Maybe he doesn't move the ball from left to right and right to left enough to, to be good at Augusta. I'm not exactly sure why. He hasn't been more effective at Augusta, and maybe that's why he won't do good this week if he doesn't. But to me, he's got the most all-around game, all the facets. He can get up and down. He can also make putts. Um, So for me, going into every tournament, he's a favorite. Um, The only thing that would concern me is, like you said, you kind of pointed out the fact that he's just not really that good at the Masters, and I don't know why that is. I guess he's got to be a little bit better for me to feel confident in it, but like I said, I think he's the best in the world, and so uh, he's probably going to be in my fantasy lineups because I just think he's the best. Uh, let's get a couple of more players, and then we'll get into our picks for, for the tournament. Xander Schauffele is a guy that I'm waiting to explode in a major, always around the top five or ten. He's a 14-to-1 odds. Uh, tied for second last year, six top six finishes in majors and 13 starts. Could this be a guy that finally wins a major? It could, but the way that I look at these things, especially, again, from a fantasy perspective, because when I look at things from a fantasy sports perspective, you're trying to find value. So picking all – you can't just pick the five best players in the world and put them in your lineup. You have to find somebody who's undervalued as far as price. So how good is a player compared to how much he costs in order to have him on your roster? I look at players that way so that – and in many ways, regardless of whether I'm playing fantasy sports or not. And to me, he's obviously a very good player. And that's why he's rated as highly as he is, and yet he, doesn't, he hasn't broken through, and why isn't that? So for me, I look at him as being overpriced. So he's a little bit overrated. Would he go out there and win? He absolutely – he's going to eventually, I would think. I mean, Sergio Garcia eventually did. Uh, Phil Mickelson eventually did. I don't know how many people are old enough to remember that Mickelson never really got it done early in his career. Now, it wasn't really his fault. It was the fact that Tiger Woods was on the scene. But nonetheless, there was a long time where Mickelson was the best player never to win a major – Shoffley is get, it might you know maybe he doesn't deserve that title yet, but if it's two or three more years from now and he still doesn't have a major or he hasn't tied you know hasn't come in second or tied and gone to a playoff in a major, it, he's going to get that title. And for me, at least right now, he definitely deserves to be rated that highly. And I expect him to be competitive. He's a great player. He does everything. I really heard him them say some really great things about him a couple of weeks ago about how everyone on tour thinks he's essentially the most the best all around player on on tour. I just don't know. I don't think he's going to win it. He's got to go out there and, and, and really get it done. And I, I just think he's going to be good, but not great. And good doesn't good doesn't get it done at Augusta. I don't think. Let's let's group three players together. Three of the top players in the world. Rory McIlroy's 14 to one. He's a guy that we've been waiting for for years to win at Augusta National to, to uh, complete the career Grand Slam. Dustin Johnson obviously is a guy that was on fire for a while this year. Finished tied for sixth at the U.S. Open. Finished tied for second 
last year in the Masters. And then, of course, John Rahm, you mentioned a moment ago. Here's another guy that's uh, been on fire this year, tied for second just this past weekend at the Zozo, uh, finished uh, fourth in 2018, tied for ninth last year at Augusta National. Those three guys, do you like all three of them to be around the top of the leaderboard on Sunday? Do you like one, two? What, what are your thoughts on those three? I would probably rank McElroy the number one player in the world as far as just the all-around makeup of his game if I didn't feel like I was disappointed. I feel like McElroy should be essentially almost like Tiger. Again, nobody competes at the same level as Tiger, whereas Tiger won, what, a third to as much as a half of all of his starts for about a three- or four-year period. I mean, nobody dominates the tour like that. So I'm not trying to, again, compare a McElroy to a Tiger. But if there's anybody who does it all, at a level as high as Tiger, anywhere close to Tiger, it's McElroy. He has the game to do everything. And yet, for some reason, he's just really good, it seems like. He just, to me, is a disappointment. So when he goes into a major, because of his all-around game, he should be at the top, and he should win a lot more. And yet, because he doesn't, I always downgrade him. So would it surprise me in the least if he's at, at the, you know, up near the leaderboards on Friday and Saturday and maybe even on uh, Sunday? No, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. But I just don't think he's going to break out and go out and, and win this thing. It wouldn't surprise. If, to be honest with you, if, if he was going to go out there and win, I think he'd win by like five or six strokes. He'd just blow it away. His overall talent, I think, is so much better than everyone else's, even significantly better than Justin Thomas's. That if he just puts it all together, I, I think by by Sunday morning the tournament will essentially be over. So for McIlroy to do it, I think it'll have to be a pretty boring Masters. Uh, I just don't think he's going to because he just. He just doesn't meet the standards that he's already set for himself, and maybe that's unfair. I'm unfair with these guys, as you know. I've been criticizing Jordan Spieth for years with you on my shows, which is unfair. But the fact is, I just expect a lot from McElroy. And while he is extremely accomplished, he doesn't quite get to that level yet. So, so every time I look at him, I think he's a bit of a disappointment. So I always pick against him. So I'm picking against him again, and you know, hopefully, he proves me wrong because again, he is an amazing talent. John Rom. It's amazing to me how consistently good he is because he hits the ball so far. He, he gets it up in the air. He's so competitive. He makes some mistakes out there. It seems like he makes some mental mistakes or just he gets too emotional and he, and he, and he throws away a shot or two uh, because he just gets so heated. But he's there all the time. So as much as I, I just don't think Rom is going to win, I definitely expect him to be in the top five. I definitely expect him to at least have a shot in the middle of Sunday. Um, but if I had to pick someone – I'm probably going to put Rom in my lineup, but I don't think he's going to win it. I wouldn't put my money on Rom to win it, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least if he did. What was the other third player? I I I, I didn't hear Dustin the third Johnson. One. Dustin DJ. Johnson. I wonder. I wonder what happens when when people you know coming off of the COVID list. Uh, has he been able to practice? Are there any lingering effects? Is there anything that the, I don't know what he's going to uh, be like when he gets out there. Sometimes rest is a good thing, but since they haven't played as much golf this year as they usually do, I don't know if players really need the rest. So I don't know if Dustin getting a couple weeks off is, is, is something that he would have needed. I think it might turn out to be a little bit rusty, but obviously he's got as much game as anyone in the world. He's long, but also consistent and straight. Um, so he can definitely be in there. I would definitely have no surprise if he ends up going out in there and finishing the top five. But anytime a guy hasn't played for a few weeks, I just got—I have to wonder if he's going to be ready. But he's a top five player, and he usually plays like that. He's much more consistent than than most players at this point in his career. So he definitely can do it. But again, I'm not putting my money on it because there's just too many reasons to have some doubts. And and those those little nuggets that sit in your head that create doubt, 
to me, Johnson has enough of them where um, I think he's going to be very good, could be very good, but I, I don't think he's going to be great and, and walk away with the title. All right, there's three other guys I want to get your quick thoughts on and guys that have sort of disappointed, if you will. And you mentioned Jordan Spieth, and you know what a big Jordan Spieth guy I am, but um, he's a guy that um, always plays well, right, at Augusta National. I mean, he's, he's finished tied for second, one tied for second, tied for 11th, third, and then tied for 21 last year. So it always brings out the best in him. Not sure he'll, he'll ever shake the ghost of 12. It'll be interesting to see if he ever has an opportunity to, uh, to win the golf tournament, how he does on 12 again. Um, Ricky Fowler is a guy that is uh, essentially disappeared. And, you know, a guy that I think we all had a lot of hopes for that he was going to be a dominant player last season. Uh, he's only made eight of 14 cuts right in 2020. Um, and then Sergio Garcia, a guy that won a few years ago, he's 50 to one odds, won a couple of weeks ago at the Sanderson farms with his eyes closed. Um, curious to get your thoughts of any one of those three that might be a factor. Sergio has been another guy that was the best player never to win a major until eventually finally he did. He's such a good ball striker, even still now. I definitely think he can be out there. He hits the ball long and straight, not as long as the longest, but he hits it plenty long enough, and he's such a good ball striker. I don't. The, the problem with him has always been putting, and that's why he's putting blind, is because he, he's always chasing some way to somehow putt just a little bit better. But he's such a good player from tee to green that he's been able to win tournaments, that he's had an enorm- uh, uh, just an enormously successful career. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he really was competitive this week. But to go out and win, uh, that's, that's a stretch. Uh, he'd have to really putt extremely well, and he'd have to get up and down really well. And I think he can do enough as far as around the greens, but I just don't think he's going to be able to putt well enough. And that's always been the problem, and I expect that again. But I would not be even remotely surprised to see him extremely competitive. He's one of the best pure golfers from tee to green I, I think probably we've seen in 20 years or so. So that, I think that will bode well for his performance at Augusta. I just don't think – I think the putting will, will just not be enough for him to actually go out there and win the thing. I'm pulling for Jordan Spieth. As much as I've been critical of him when you come on my shows, I'm critical because he just doesn't have the talent that some of these great players have. He's an, but I love him because he wins anyway. That's what's so great about him. He, he, a, he's a great person from all I know. But on top of that, he's just a really smart golfer normally. He, he just, he's competitive. He grinds. He gets it done. How he's been as successful as he has with, with being probably – I mean, if you look at him I – again, I don't want this to seem critical. But if you look at his pure skill, his ability at the level, he's probably not even a top 50 pure talent. Uh, you look at guys like Justin Thomas and, and Dustin Johnson and John Rahm and even Bryson DeChambeau before he became the monster hitter that he is now. All of those guys are physically just significantly more talented naturally than Jordan Spieth. And yet, obviously, he had a phenomenal start to his career. That's great. I love that. And I'm hoping that Spieth can put it together and somehow find his way back to what he was. But, he, again, he, he just he can't – there's no margin for error there. His ceiling is so low because he's just nowhere near as talented as so many of these other players. It's kind of like um, he just – I hope he can do well. I just don't – I just don't – I just don't think he can. He's got to put it together consistently for a while before I'm going to buy in. And also, he's got to drive the ball better. I mean, to, to be competitive at Augusta, you at least have to put the ball in the fairway. And he hasn't seemingly been able to do that for quite some time now. So – I'm pulling for him. I hope he gets together. The game is much better off when he's competitive. A guy who doesn't just dominate the course because of talent, uh, the game is so much better when he's good, and I hope he can turn it around. And I was had hopes. La- what, last week he was 
he looked pretty good on Friday, and then by the time Sunday came around, he, he had kind of fallen off. I think Saturday he had a little bit of a struggling day, uh, so it reminded us of the struggles he's been having. But um, I hope for him, but no, I, I don't see how he, he gets that done. All right, Chris, it's, uh, it's time for us to, to pick our foursomes. A dark horse, you call it a caddy, uh, and uh, sort of the guy <laughs> that uh, might come from out of nowhere to win. So give me, give me your foursome, your dark horse, and, and the guy from way downtown. I got a few guys that are interesting. I'm interested to see how Matthew Wolf does. Because every time the media, every time you watch any tournament, all the broadcasters, they always talk about how, yes, he has this little herky-jerky motion, but at the key points in his swing, he's exactly where you're supposed to be and that his, essentially they're implying that his swing is normal. I buy into that. I'm not a golf coach, so I'll buy into that. Um, but it still amazes me how good he is, not just distance, because obviously he generates a lot of club head speed, but how often he sticks the pin from the, from the fairways just amazes me. To have that little herky-jerky motion and stuff, and yet he just sticks the pin over and over and over. I'm intrigued to see, because he hits it so far. If he can stick the flag like that, then he doesn't even need to putt well to, to be able to compete. Wolf is obviously a very well-respected player. He's, he's proven that he's going to be a great player. I have no doubt about that. But he's not a Justin Thomas yet. He's not a Dustin Johnson yet. So I'm intrigued to see if he can establish himself not only as one of the great players that he's going to be, but can he put himself up at the top five and put himself in that, that discussion? Because his physical talent is, is every bit as good as essentially almost everybody. Uh, so I'm intrigued to see if he can go out there at Augusta and do that. I wouldn't call him a dark for his course. He'd be one of the good players that I don't think is one of the top favorites yet. He's the guy that I'm interested to see. Another one that I think – there's a couple guys that I have that I think if they can win a major like the Masters, then they will go from being a guy that everyone knows is good, but then he can, so they can cement themselves as one of the top players in the world. And there are a couple guys I see that. I see that as Patrick Cantlay and Joaquin Neiman. I think both of those guys are extremely talented, and they're not getting the respect they deserve yet, but consistently week after week they're good. And everybody knows them. They're not nobodies. But they're just if they can win a major, all of a sudden they will cement themselves as a top ten player, and they'll be one of those guys that you, you hear in the advertisements when the Golf Channel advertises on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You know, John Rahm's going to be here. McElroy's playing this week, and so is Patrick Cantlay or Joaquin Neiman. If those guys could go out there and win a major, I think that is what they need to cement themselves as one of the world's best. And I, I, I'm intrigued to see how they do. As far as the dark horses go, I got a couple that I'm interested in: Russell Henley. He's playing extremely well. He obviously won a few weeks ago, but his putting has been phenomenal, and his approach game has been extremely good. That's a guy that's fallen down the list. He, because he won recently, he's not a nobody. He's on the radar because he won recently. But if he hadn't won, nobody would know who the heck Russell Henley is. I think that qualifies as a, as a dark horse. But he's one of those guys, like we talked about before, does, does playing well right now matter? I think maybe this year it might matter a little bit more than most. And right now, Russell Henley's playing extremely well. He's exciting to me. And another one, I was, uh, I was looking through the stats, Jason Kokrak. Obviously, he won recently as well, so that's going to bring people uh, around to his name, so they won't be shocked. But how well he's putting and how good his strokes gained have been, again, that's, in, that's impressive to me. I think you've got to do that well at Augusta. And for me, the, he's, just, he's a, a hot player who's doing the things that you need to do to, to be good at the Masters. And, and I, that's a, again, I think he would be a dark horse if he hadn't won a couple weeks ago. Um, he's a, a guy that I, I'm intrigued by. And, again, from a fantasy perspective, he's down the list as far as cost goes. And then Scotty Scheffler, I think he's exciting. I, he's been sneaky good. Again, he's been playing consistently better for a while now. 
but he's not a guy that people know. He's not a household name. Uh, he hasn't won consistently enough where he's he's in the the forefront of people's minds. Um, so I find uh, Scotty Scheffler to be an intriguing guy, and again, he's playing well and he's doing all the things you need to to do well at Augusta. So those are guys that are further down the list of, that I'm intrigued by. Well, Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and or to be a part of the show and uh, to share your knowledge and your insights. I tell you, I, I like the players that uh, that you've listed there. Um, I'll throw out a couple of mine. As a dark horse, I like Hideki Matsuyama. Finished tied for 32nd last year, but he finished fifth in 2017 and tied for seventh in 2018, T11 and 17, and then uh, 19th in 2018. So. Uh, I like him to kind of round back into form. I think he's a steady player. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. And from a guy from way downtown, don't uh, don't discount uh, Ian Poulter. He's a guy who finished fifth at the BMW Championship a couple of weeks ago or, over on the European Tour. If someone's going to come from out of nowhere, I wouldn't put it past a guy like Poulter. Uh, he always seems to, certainly at the Ryder Cup, figure out a way to to get himself uh, you know hyped up and uh, take down somebody. So. He's a guy from way downtown that uh, I'm interested to see how well Poulter plays. But um, thank you, Chris. You're fantastic, my friend. I can't thank you enough for uh, for being generous with your time tonight and coming and being part of the show. Anytime you want to have me on any of your shows, you guys do a fantastic job. I love talking golf, like talking football, whatever you guys want to do. Uh, I love coming on the program. You're a fantastic guest. You're, you do a great, great job show-wise. So anytime you need me, just give me a quick ring. I got eight minutes anytime you need me. <laughs> you're fantastic let our listeners know how they can follow you on social media and listen to your shows chris right, the best way to follow me probably is on twitter because i put links to pretty much everything i write or anything that i podcast um so at cj mitch 73 again at cj mitch 73 cj m i t c h 73 you can talk at me you can talk about me you, you can get links to anything i write or a podcast on and uh, if you want a little politics from time to time you can just so i get frustrated and can't keep my mouth shut you can uh you can talk at me there too chris take care my friend all the best to you and your family stay safe look forward to catching up with you again soon you too the man thanks for having me on i appreciate it all right take care chris that's Chris Mitchell. Again, at CJMitch73 is how you can follow him on Twitter. And uh, his podcasts are fantastic. Like I said, I've been blessed over the years to uh, when, it, when it came majors time. And this, uh, this year has obviously been uh, crazy in, in every different way. Uh, so we haven't been able to connect as much this year. But we talk majors all the time. And uh, Chris knows his stuff. Uh, great baseball writer, as a matter of fact, and a, and a great baseball podcast host. So Chris uh, does a fantastic job on all of those things as well. So I highly encourage you to, uh, to follow him again at CJ Mitch 73, uh, check out his links, listen to his podcast. Uh, he's as knowledgeable as they come folks. And uh, we'll certainly get uh, back together with Chris again next year. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of next on the team. My sincere thanks go out to Hal Sutton, Mark Kalkovecki and Chris Mitchell for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Now, we're going to be off next week, right? It's, it's election night, so I'm sure everyone's going to be glued and interested to see how that thing turns out. So we'll, we're going to take next week off. We'll be back at it Tuesday, November 10th. And scheduled to join me that night are going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. John Patrick, the host of the Augusta Golf Show, really looking forward to having John back on the show. We'll certainly do a recap 
of the uh, of the master. So looking forward to getting his insights. And then a guy that I miss, you know, broadcasting at the Masters, Mr. Ben Wright is going to be back. So looking forward to getting his insights on the Masters as well. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great sites and apps like podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, Radio.com. Folks, if you've got a favorite podcasting site, I'm pretty sure we're on it. Just go into the search bar, type in next on the T. I'm sure you'll find us. Folks, thanks again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make us a part of your golfing content. See you in a couple weeks. Stay safe, everybody.